1: I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC, and here is your top five at five. Can Monday's boom power on futures? They're mixed after the Dow posts its best day in months. Jay Powell, take two. The Fed chair back on Capitol Hill. as Investors wait for any words on inflation and interest rates. The word on cryptos lately, meanwhile, has been down. They're struggling as China cracks down. Closing in on a deal, President Biden looking to meet with lawmakers over his trillion-dollar spending and infrastructure package. The needle could move today. And start your engines. 20 years ago, one movie franchise raced into theaters. This week, it could crack the top five highest grossing franchises of all time. Can you guess it, if you're not watching the video right now? It is Tuesday, June 22nd, and this is Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. I mean, if you're watching, not listening, you saw it, you know what it is, but don't tell anybody who may not have seen it. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. Thank you very much for joining us once again. Good to be back because it's a big Tuesday. Let's how things look right now after that huge start to the week. The Dow closing up around 600 points. It's best day since all the way back, well, on March 5th, but still a doggone good day. The S&P 500 and NASDAQ surging as well. Everyone, you know, they're going to look for fundamental reasons for the big move. Well, it's this or it's that, but... Really, if you read all the Wall Street notes, it may have been more technical than anything. I want to show you something. Look at this S&P 500 chart. The 50-day moving average highlighted in purple. Look at that. Every time we test it and it's held, it's provided a pop off that 50-day DME. It closed on the the moving average on Friday night. So really coming into it, a nice Technical setup that doesn't include the bounce of yesterday for a reason. I kind of wanted to show where we were on Friday. Well, falling bond yields might have also helped, particularly growth stocks. And despite Fed fears, 10 year yields continuing to drop. The 10 year yield coming up a little off its lows yesterday, but still below 1.5%. You remember, Scott Miner to Guggenheim Partners told you on this very show a few weeks ago he thought yields would fall and could go back below 1%. Well, The trend so far has been right on that call. We'll see where it goes. By the way, he was right on Bitcoin as well. Let's check the overnight action in Asia after Monday's wild move. We saw a big pop higher in Japan. The Nikkei rising more than 3%. Look at that. Only the Hang Seng fell. The early trade in Europe, though, not quite the trends that we had here. It is mixed. Some of the markets are up. Some are down. Thus, the mixed. All right. Well, the likely market-moving event of the day comes from Wall Street South, also known as Washington, D.C., where Fed Chair Jay Powell back on Capitol Hill testifying before Congress. And much like last week, investors likely hanging on every word. Christina Partsinevelis is here with what we can expect for the Fed Chair. Christina, good morning.
2: Good morning. I like Wall Street South. That's pretty good. But that's right. You have the Federal Reserve Chairman taking the hot seat this morning when he testifies before the House Select subcommittee on the coronavirus crisis. In prepared remarks released yesterday, Jay Powell echoes comments he delivered following the Fed policy decision last week, noting that, quote, widespread vaccinations have joined unprecedented monetary and fiscal actions in providing strong support to the recovery, adding indicating of the economic activity and employment have continued to strengthen, and real GDP this year appears to be on track to post its fastest rate of increase in decades. The pandemic, however, continues to pose a risk to the bank's economic outlook, according to Powell, saying while progress on vaccinations have limited the spread of COVID, a slowing pace and new strains are worrying. On inflation, Powell looks to reiterate his outlook that the recent rise in prices reflect base effects, pass through in higher oil prices, reopening demand and supply bottlenecks. As the, quote, transitory effects abate, Powell says to expect to drop back towards his longer run goals. Brian.
1: Christina, thank you. And thankfully, it looks like the vaccines are indeed very effective against that Delta variant as well. Christina, we'll see you in a few more minutes. All right. Let's talk more now about the Fed and your money, because it and interest rates, they're connected, play a big role in how the markets and your stocks perform. Let's bring now Glenview Trust Company, Chief Investment Officer, Bill Stone. Bill, always a pleasure to have you back on the program. Is there anything j Powell can or might say today that would change your fundamental longer-term thesis?
0: Well, I, I suppose w- what would make me... You know, negative would be if I really thought that they were going to raise rates enough to snuff out this economic recovery. And I think that's really what the market was worried about last week. We got some reprieve from it uh, yesterday. But, um, you know, what you saw in the markets last week after the Fed uh, and Bullard were really, you know, the yield curve really, um, you know, flattening. That is just. Simply showing that the market thinks the, you know, you have a, not, not, I would say more of a chance of going into recession. And I don't want to say it got into any sort of numbers that looked like that. But what it, what it really was reading through was, Hey, we're worried that you're going to move too fast and snuff this thing out. And that's why you saw, you know, the value stocks just to get crushed, anything kind of cyclical pretty much uh, get hammered and the growth side of the equation, kind of the COVID playbook. Uh, if you will, uh, really pick up.
1: Everybody kind of assumes, which that statement alone, Bill, is automatically very dangerous, that 10-year yields are going to end the year above 2%. Well, of course, they're going to end the year above 2%. They're still below 1.5% right now, Bill. (laughs) What if they don't? What happens if interest rates don't move higher or, like Scott Minard says, move even lower, despite that's not being the consensus call by any stretch?
0: Yeah, well, I hope he's wrong about his number being that low, because I think at the end of the the day, uh, a move up, you know, at least some sort of a, you know, relatively stable move up in yields is probably just a signal that the economy is continuing to get better. Um, It's hard to kind of square the, the circle. If you've got inflation running, and I'm going to say, you know, obviously headlines at five percent, but there's a lot of noise in there with those, you know, base effects versus last year. But let's just say our our analysis would say we're probably a legit, you know, underlying inflation rate is somewhere in the high twos, maybe even the low three percent. You know, it's hard to say that that's a very, you know, appropriate ten uh, year yield for that kind of inflation number.
1: Yeah, you just heard us talk with Christina about vaccinations. Uh, Is this one of the reasons you think that Pfizer stock is a good bet or is it really a combination of other things, including, sadly, the myriad of other diseases that we had to face pre-COVID and will face post-COVID?
0: Yeah, I think Pfizer is interesting because you've got the kind of, you know, again, it's, it's, it's sad to say, but the insurance against, you know, kind of if COVID continues to, and it probably will be with us at least in some form, um you know i don't know for however long so you've got the vaccine out there they'll probably have to have boosters over time so it's probably you know again sad to say a long-term franchise for them um but then aside from that you know the main point is a very diversified company uh you know some of their vaccine business frankly otherwise has been hurt because people again you know COVID-related didn't go to the doctor as much, didn't get certain vaccinations aside from COVID, those kind of things that will pick up as we continue to reopen. And I think they also showed themselves obviously uh, clear experts in the vaccine field. So uh, I think that uh, continues to be attractive, as, you know, sells for a very low PE and a high dividend yield.
1: Yeah, uh, picked there. It's up 25 and a half percent, by the way. Just a huge shout out to all them and Moderna and others uh, scientists and teams working countless hours last year to get those vaccines out. Quite an accomplishment. Bill Stone of Glenview Trust. Bill, a real pleasure. Talk to you soon. Thank, Thank you. Are right, you're welcome. All right, we got a long way to go here on this Tuesday when we come back. Is it a Lordstown Lifeline? Details on the electric truck maker's next potential game plan ahead. Investors going hog wild for a chicken deal, maybe. We'll explain. And later on... Bumble Burnout. The surprising policy going into effect. The corporate offices at the dating app will tell you what they're doing that's made their employees very happy. Dow futures off just a touch. We're back with more Worldwide Exchange right after this.
3: What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? at least that's good. The UPS Store: Be Unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time.
1: Time now for your big money movers, 3 key stock stories of the morning. Stock number 1, Lordstown Motors. The struggling electric truck startup says it is evaluating strategic partners as it searches for necessary funding to stay in business. Company opened its assembly plant, a former GM factory in Ohio, right up there against Route 80. And to reporters yesterday and earlier this month, Lordstown had warned that it may not be able to continue as a going concern, i.e., go out of business, if it can't raise more money to retool that plant. Stock number two Delta Airlines. It plans to hire more than 1,000 pilots by next summer, according to an internal memo. Delta's anticipating a recovery in air travel as international restrictions now begin to ease. Last year, Delta cut about 3,500 pilots, many through early retirement packages and putting some on inactive status. And stock three, Sanderson Farms. Sources say the chicken producer is exploring a sale. This at a time for demand when its products, you know, chickens, is rising as restaurants reopen because chickens are delicious. Reports say that Sanderson is drawing interest. Last year, it rejected an unsolicited takeover offer from a private equity firm. All right, on deck on this Tuesday, forget Amazon, Walmart, and Target. Well, those are deals. But the real deal days, they're on Wall Street. PwC has a new report that says just how big the deal flow is and maybe how much money bankers might be making. today's big number, $400 billion. That's how much Goldman Sachs expects household net equity buying will reach this year. That's an increase of 14% over the prior year.
4: At the UPS store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need.
3: Is there you can't do?
4: Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. The UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything.
3: At least that's good. The UPS Store.
4: Be unstoppable.
3: Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See Center for Details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time.
1: Well, the last few years have certainly been an investment banker's dream. Huge deals like AT&T buying Time Warner and then AT&T selling Time Warner have been grabbing headlines and helping dealmakers grab some huge paydays. And the dream only may be getting dreamier. According to PwC, the number of U.S. deals will dramatically outpace that of last year, as well as the value, not just the number of the deals. Joining us for a look at what is behind the surge and how this sustainable, this merger frenzy may be is Colin Whitmer. He is U.S. deals leader for PwC, Colin, thanks very much for joining us. We would have brought an investment banker into the conversation, but they were all too busy, probably still up <laughs> from last night, working on their latest deal. How big have the numbers been? Yeah, I'll tell you. you know, when you look
5: at the deal market from two perspectives, you can look at it from the volume perspective and the value perspective. When you think about the volumes, it's been pretty incredible. There's been nearly fifteen thousand transactions in 2020, and that was up eight percent over 19. And if you think about the run rate for 2021, we're already at 6,500 through May. So there's still plenty of volume in the system. And as you rightly pointed out, there's a very significant story here around value. When you think of the number of mega deals that have happened just in 2021 alone, it's up now to about 54, which is the same amount that was all of last year. Um, and the first quarter of 2021, just from an announced value perspective, was $780 billion. Which was 17% up over the fourth quarter of last year, which was again the previous high watermark. So, to your point, there's a lot of stories here on volume and value, and the numbers look really good. And the industry itself is quite busy. We've even surveyed our CEOs, um, on a survey that we do, and 57% of them said that they're going to increase their own budgets. So, very,
1: very robust market. Yeah. You know, speaking to those in the industry, both on the deal-making side, the company side, the legal side, they all basically say the same thing, and I will paraphrase, of course, Colin, which is if I ask them how much longer can this deal frenzy goes on, they'll go on, they'll say, you know what, as long as money is basically free, is that it, low rates and a world awash in cash?
5: It is both of those. Low rates is a big contributor to um – to the continuation of this run. But capital is another big part of this story. You know, most of our corporates went into the pandemic with record levels of cash to begin with and then bounced back from the pandemic quite well. So they're sitting on a tremendous amount of cash available to do deals. And of course, private equity has been a big player in this market. They're up to an hour, now to about 39% of the deals that are getting done in 2021, which is, you know, 10 points higher than it has been in the past. And they are awash with capital as well. Um, so I think this long as the regulatory environment is somewhat stable, um, tax rates are low, interest rates continue to be low, and inflation inflation continues under control, I think we have a long runway ahead of us for MA.
1: And I didn't mention the AT&T deal, then no deal, then sell off the deal because I'm trying to pick on AT&T necessarily, although it will go down as maybe one of the worst deals of all time. That aside, which always seems to include Time Warner. Anyway, Colin, it's that M- media and telecom is topping your list as the sector most involved in deals. It's been hot. Yeah.
5: yeah, it is extremely hot. And when you step back and look at what companies are trying to do with transactions now, they're trying to transform their business. There's a lot of cross industry um, investment, and a lot of that is going into tech, and a lot of that's going into media. You think of retailers who now want to have an omnichannel presence and are. Their- and are doing um, a tech deal, it is permeating and it is driving up valuations.
1: Yeah, there's our chart there showing Media Telecom about 25% of that massive deal flow. And Colin will welcome me back on soon because, like you just pointed out, we're about ready to top last year's numbers in deal volume by halfway through the year. I mean, it's really... Truly stunning. There's going to be a lot of big bonuses being paid. Hey, maybe it's good for the, for the struggling Manhattan real estate market. Colin Whitmer, PwC. Have a great day, Colin. Great stuff. Take care.
5: Thank you so much, Brian. Have
1: a good one. Yeah, a lot of, you're very welcome. A lot of private equity, attorneys, etc. They are getting paid lately. All right. Well, let's get a check on some of this morning's other top headlines outside the world of money and business. For that, we go to NBC's Philip Mena in New York. Good morning, Philip.
6: Hey Brian, good morning. The Trump Organization is taking New York City to court, accusing it of canceling a lucrative golf course contract for political reasons after the Capitol riot. Back in January, Mayor Bill de Blasio terminated the contract, saying Trump's role in the insurrection tarnished the brand name. Well, Trump organization officials are calling de Blasio's actions purely politically motivated, and they want a judge to reverse his decision. If the city loses, they could be on the hook for $30 million. That's the money the organization spent on upgrades to the course. This month's brutal heat wave is fueling extreme fire danger in the west. Multiple wildfires are burning right now in California, Colorado, Arizona, and Oregon. The Backbone Fire northeast of Phoenix grew to over 32,000 acres on Monday, and right now it is 0% contained. Finally, it was a historic day for the NFL as Las Vegas Raiders defensive end Carl Nassib became the first active NFL player to come out as gay. Nassib made that announcement on Instagram, saying he wants to do his part to cultivate a culture that is accepting and compassionate. He also pledged $100,000 to the Trevor Project that provides crisis intervention and suicide prevention services for the LGBTQ community. The Raiders tweeted saying, proud of you, Carl. Brian, back to you.
1: Good for them and good for him. Philomena, thank you very much. All right, now, as we had to break another milestone when it comes to air travel, because the TSA numbers are in and they are big. On Sunday, more than 2.1 million people got on an airplane in America. That is the most since March 7th of 2020, days before the first lockdowns went into effect. In fact, we've now cracked the 2 million mark five times lately, including this past Sunday. Yes. The numbers are still slightly off the 2019 peaks, but they are growing and showing no signs of slowing. And once international reopens, those numbers could surpass 2019 at current rates. Have you been on a plane lately? My guess is it's oversold. Dow Futures down four. We're back right after this. Holy Monday, stocks snapping the recent sell-off and printing their best day since early March. But cryptos continue to crumble as Bitcoin, Ethereum, and others bring tears to investors' eyes. What will today bring will set you up. Call him in cautiously optimistic, Jay Powell. The Fed chair set the face-off with lawmakers today on where the economy stands with a warning on the remaining risks. And it's all gas and no brakes with your morning RBI. And the staggering amount of money the fast and the furious franchise has pulled in during its 20-year run. That's right, 20 years. It is Tuesday, June 22nd, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Those numbers on the Fast and the Furious are big, and we don't reference them for a random reason. It's coming up in your RBI. Welcome. Good morning, everybody. I'm Brian Sullivan. It's 427 in the Central Time Zone, 527 in the East. Thanks for joining us. You're an early riser. Well, Let's see how things look on a Tuesday after a huge start to the week. Futures right now, well, they're not moving in a huge way. In fact, they're, they're not moving much at all. But, hey, after yesterday's move with the Dow closing up nearly 600 points, the best day since March 5th with the s and and NASDAQ surging as well. Can't expect that kind of stuff to happen every day. Now, of course, everyone was looking for fundamental reasons for the big move. But there were reasons. But also look at this. And if you missed it earlier, it's worth another look. It's the S&P 500 going back a year with the 50-day moving average on it. And look at that. Every time that the S&P tested that 50-day moving average, Once, twice, thrice, fourth thrice, fifth thrice, whatever. This was the sixth time on Friday that we touched it. And so technically, the market was maybe historically setting some up for a pop. And indeed, that's what we got. So yeah, there might have been some fundamental reasons there. Who knows what the change was between Monday and Friday. I don't and won't pretend to. But there was a nice technical setup as well. Now, following bond yields. May have also helped, and despite all the Fed and inflation fears. Ten-year yields continue to drop. Yeah, we're off our lows of yesterday, but we're still under 1.5%. But going in the other direction is oil. Oil on Monday touching its highest level since October of 2018. We just keep it the superlatives, folks. A reminder, there's a huge OPEC meeting on Thursday, July 1st. So not this Thursday, but the next one. And I say it's huge because, remember, they're starting to talk about adding more barrels and... You just had a real hardliner win the Iranian elections, which we talked about last week. And that could sort of change the calculus on not only how Iran approaches the West and President Biden, but also how it negotiates at OPEC, because the Iranian OPEC minister, Bijan Zangana, who's always kind enough to give CNBC interviews or at least a few words, the longest serving OPEC minister, by the way, he is out. He's stepping down, retiring. So a lot of changes with Iran and oil something there to watch oils down a little bit now but still at its highest since 2018. All right, now let's get more on the push for a big time spending and infrastructure package in Washington D.C. Some other headlines, Christina, Partsevlos is back with details on that,
2: Christina. Well, we have President Biden that is set to meet with lawmakers this week to discuss that bipartisan proposal on what else? Infrastructure. The group constructing that package is working to finalize the details on the plan, hoping to wrap up talks, hoping uh, this week ahead of that meeting with the president. And according to Politico, the lawmakers are, are sketching out a spending plan in far greater detail than previously reported. Paying for the roughly $1 trillion package remains a key sticking point. Senators John Tester and Susan Collins say the idea of indexing the motor fuels tax to inflation to cover some of the cost is all but dead. The White House says the president held talks with two of the members of that bipartisan group yesterday. Biden spoke with Democratic Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema on how he was encouraged by the proposal, but still had questions about the strategy to pay for it all. He also apparently told the pair he was, quote, focused on budget resolution discussions in the Senate, an apparent reference to Democratic plans to pass parts of his infrastructure plan using reconciliation. The White House has been pushing a plan to raise funds by having the IRS collect money from, quote, tax cheats. Meanwhile, Republicans' Rob Portman says the group is also looking at raising revenue from airwave sales and collecting fees from major polluters. Solutions, maybe? I don't know if they can agree. Brian, back to you.
1: Not minor polluters, just major Major polluters there. Exactly. Chris- major. Christina, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, well, lately, cryptos could use some kind of a spending package of their own. If you're not paying attention, you should. Bitcoin down nearly 50 percent, almost exactly, by the way, 50 percent from its April 15th highs. Ethereum also taking a huge hit off its peak, the move being sparked in part by China's government, which is effectively trying to ban all cryptos, or at least the cryptos they don't ultimately create. But some traders believe the markets may be overreacting to that news. Get more insight now from Rich Rosenblum, co-founder and co-head of trading at GSR, a crypto market maker and trading firm. And somebody who I think, Rich, in a previous life, our paths crashed, crossed in the oil markets as well. Because that commodities and oil, are uh, part of your longer-term history as well. Uh, the, the cryptos. Um, if you had to say what the main... Is there one main reason... And by the way, they're still well up from where they were a year ago. Let's do context and and key here. But off their peaks, is there one thing that sticks out to you, Rich?
7: I'd say it's that Bitcoin. It stands for for freedom, not only uh, economic freedom, but uh, freedom of speech. And that's something, as we've seen, that China doesn't like. It's an autocratic country. And give give me a break that they're trying to, to regulate it. Uh, they're trying to ban it. See seen China try to ban a lot of things, including the Internet. And if you go to China, you can't use a, a, a litany of different technology companies that we use you know, every, every day here in America. And I think it's part of what makes it great here. And I think uh, China's China done it before. You can read headlines and say the exact same thing from 2013. And so, uh, you know, I'm more of a long term trader, less focused on the details. We are down a lot, but this is frontier technology. You got to be in it and expect it to to be volatile. Uh, I do think that the big drop uh, knocked a lot of the leverage out of the system. And I think the CDC lifting the mask ordinance on May 13th, probably having an equally big uh, impact on the market as China, because people are out there uh, playing sports, going out, they're not in front of their phones as much. So a lot of the day traders are out. But the the bigger players like uh, GSR, we're, we're still in and believe in it for the long term. And If I wasn't looking at the prices today, I'd I'd still think we're at all-time highs.
1: Well, you're right about China. I mean, they're basically trying to create their own internet. All the things we use pretty much every day here, almost none of them you can use there as well. And their reports say they're trying to do the same thing, maybe create their own, you know, crypto renminbi. I mean, which kind of defeats the purpose of the decentralized nature of a Bitcoin, which they may not be able to ban that. But they can ban banks from sending people money to use to buy cryptos. So they do have some power.
7: Yeah, there's certainly some power. Uh, yeah, I think there was some, some talk in 2012, the US government was considering banning Bitcoin and then realized they, they couldn't. They could you know, push it offshore and, and limit the use of it then it's just going to be more popular in some other areas. So I think it's a strategic move that China is going to make major investments into blockchain technology. They just only want it to be used for the government and, and for the military and you know, for the individuals. It's going to be left more for countries like the U.S. To, to lead the way.
1: I don't want to get too in the weeds, Rich, because I'm not to be perfectly honest with you. I'm not sure I fully understand it, but I'm doing my damnedest to learn on Ethereum. Going from proof of work to proof of stake, POW to POS. And when I first thought, I thought POS stands for something else. And I'm trying to understand how this shift that Ethereum is doing to try to change the sort of carbon nature of mining, at least for that. Can you give us, in, a, in a layman's terms, what this is and why it may matter in the short term as far as some volatility there?
7: Sure. So I'd say, um, you know, one beautiful thing about this technology is it's always changing. Even Bitcoin itself, um, the technology and the way its mined is changing. Uh, My company, GSR, in the past few months, we've uh, taken our carbon footprint uh, to to zero by having half of our mining be hydroelectric. And we're offsetting the other half and with the goal in a year uh, to be uh, fully using Um, renewable energy. But in terms of Ethereum, the move to proof of stake, this is all about having a decentralized world where you you need a bunch of different groups called called nodes that are validating a network. Instead of having that validation be through a proof of work solving essentially a math problem in Bitcoin, uh, proof of stake is just you have to have some uh, Ethereum and do that validation by holding it and putting it onto a network to serve that validation. There's a bunch of other methods, and one of the that's getting very popular is Chia. That's more of proof in time and space, and it uses space on a hard drive, but oh, by far the most popular over the past year is Ethereum. You can see it's still up um, you know, over 100% on the year. Um, Started the year, it's roughly $700. Now it's about you know, $1,900. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, I think one of the things that's made it more popular is that it's more energy efficient lately. It also has smart contracts tracks on like you can uh, like uh, cr- create a pattern that you want to happen yeah. on Ethereum and there'll be a code that automatically makes it happen
1: I don't know about you Rich but it's the first time I've talked about something like that at 5.37am even anchoring this show for a couple uh-huh. of years uh, it's, an imp- it's a technical topic it's an important <laughs> one especially uh, for Ether Rich we appreciate you breaking it down in an easy to understand way we'll get you back on again soon if you want Rich Rosenblum at GSR thank you very much Thanks a lot, Brian. You're very welcome, folks. If you're invested in crypto, you cannot lose sight of the energy production and consumption. That's gonna be a big play there, especially that POW to POS thing on Ethereum and others. Stay focused there. All right, coming up, your morning's top trending stories, which include more chicken news and how one wing chain is trying to wean you off wings. But as we had to break, some of your other top stories Victoria's Secret is reportedly borrowing $500 million to help pay for its split from Bath & Body Works. According to Bloomberg, J.P. Morgan Chase overseeing possible sale. ExxonMobil pushing back on another Bloomberg report that it's planning to cut 5 to 10 percent of its U.S. office staff every year for the next three to five years. The oil giant telling us the report is, quote, false and misleading, adding it is going through its annual assessments, which are entirely unrelated to workforce reductions. And businesses are reportedly gearing up to fight the SEC's growing push for public companies to disclose more information about how they respond to threats linked to climate change. According to The Wall Street Journal, energy and transportation companies argue climate change risks aren't easily measured. We're back in a moment. Dow Features off 33. Stay tuned. All right, welcome back. Well, it has been a big six months to remember in many ways, of course, many good, many, many bad. Particularly, though, as COVID collapsed around the country and parts of the world. But it's also been big for the markets and your money. Check out some of these stunning stats that our crack team put together over the last half year. The S&P 500 on pace for its best first half since 2019. Not to be outdone, the transports, their best first half since all the way back in 1997. Wow. Regional banks, measured by one ETF, had the best day since January 6th and on pace for their best first half ever, at least back to their inception. Oil on pace for its best first half since 2009. And in the year of digging stuff out of the ground, gold is on pace for the worst first half since 2019. But lately, Gold has shown some signs of life, certainly in the markets, and in many ways, a six months to remember. Well, I'm back, and so the RBI is back, and today's most random but interesting thing could be, well, it could have been those stats we just gave you. They were good, but this one has to do with something a little bit lighter, and that is the movie, specifically one movie, or rather one movie franchise that is near and dear to our hearts here at NBC Universal, and that is... NBC Universal's Fast and the Furious. Because it may be hard to believe, but today is the 20th anniversary of the release of the first movie, which was aptly titled The Fast and the Furious. It was a big success at the box office, grossing more than $200 million. But that actually looks kind of small time right now. Because since then, the franchise has delivered furiously. The nine movies in the Fast saga have grossed over $6.1 billion globally, according to the numbers. In fact, just one of the movies, Furious 7, back in 2015, brought in more than $1.5 billion by itself. And now the latest movie is out, F9, The Fast Saga. And so on this 20th anniversary of the first Fast film, we are all wishing it well, of course. And even if this movie takes in just A few hundred million bucks. It'll probably do a lot better than that. It should vault past X-Men and Spider-Man franchises at 6th and 5th place on the all-time franchise record board and will likely tuck in very nicely, thank you, to the James Bond movies. Come to think of it, that Bond guy drove some nice cars too. Just not anything as cool as a hopped-up Dodge Challenger. Random, but interesting, and good luck to F9. All right, let's get now to today's top trending stories, which include burnout at Bumble, Toyota bots, and trying the thigh, chicken style. Christina Portzendevolos is back with those stories and more. Christina.
2: Thank you, Brian. So let's talk about Bumble. It's giving its employees across the globe a paid week off from work to combat Burnout. The Dating and Connections app has shut down its offices worldwide for the 700 people that work for the company. It's the latest example of companies relaxing their requirements for employees, with uh, LinkedIn actually giving their entire workforce a week off back in April. And Toyota is developing a robot that can clean your counters while also taking a selfie. The Toyota Research Institute says the robot is is designed to help the world's aging population. It can pick up transparent objects and learn as it moves around a complex space, all while snapping some selfies. And Wingstop is launching a virtual restaurant called... Thigh Stop, selling only chicken thighs. The move comes as chicken wings are in short supply in the United States after high demand during the pandemic. CEO Charlie Morrison telling CNBC the move will allow the company to buy whole chickens now rather than just specific parts. There are 11 flavors, by the way, Brian, ranging from lemon, pepper to garlic, parmesan and atomic. I don't know. Can you handle that? It's the spiciest flavor of the bunch.
1: Oh, absolutely i think i can handle it listen i I would i'm just gonna throw the call out there i don't beg much the hot ones the talk show i'm i'm ready willing and available to just destroy my tongue and my stomach i think it's an awesome show and i'd love to go on that said if you're a real cook i'm not but i know some cooks the thigh is the most delicious part of the chicken anyway why did it take a wing shortage to get here, Christina?
2: Oh, well, this is it. Progress, right? You know, you, you reinvent things when uh, when supply runs out and stuff. So here's your opportunity. Get meat on the thigh in people's mouths. When there are dangerous
1: mouths. wing shortages, I guess because they're easier to eat the wing, perhaps. Who knows? Thigh's where it's at. Christina Partsineboulos, thank you very much. Thank you. I'll do the Atomics, hot ones, if you're out there. Give me a glass of milk. Christina, thank you. Right up next, the Fed on the hot seat. Alan Moy is here to lay out what J Powell may tell Congress, and Julian Emanuel breaks down what to do with your money around it. And by the way, if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss the show any day or you're back on the road, commuting or traveling, check it out on all the podcast platforms like Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and others. We're back right after this. All right, welcome or welcome back and good morning. Jay Powell set to head back to the Hill this afternoon to give lawmakers his latest take on the American economy. And while the Fed chair is expected to give an optimistic diagnosis, he's also expected to warn of continued threats. Lon Moy joining us now with a preview of Powell's testimony. Lon, what do we know?
3: Well, Brian, Fed Chair Jay Powell is going to stick to his script, calling the increase in inflation over the past few months notable, but also emphasizing that it still appears to be transitory. Now, Powell will say that these comments are from his written testimony ahead of this hearing today before the House Coronavirus Committee, and he'll say that the jump in inflation was due to base effects past increases in oil prices, a rebound in consumer spending and supply chain bottlenecks. In his testimony, he also says, quote, as these transitory supply effects abate, inflation is expected to drop back toward our longer run goal. Now, that's a reference to the Fed's projection for PCE inflation to be back at 2 percent next year. But Powell's written testimony does not mention the earlier forecast for liftoff in those same projections. And in fact, He doesn't mention rate hikes at all, but he does warn about the slowing pace of vaccinations and points to new strains of the virus as a potential economic risk. Now, this hearing will also focus on the Fed's emergency lending facilities during the pandemic. Powell said the Fed's actions unlocked $2 trillion of funding for businesses Nonprofits and state and local governments, and ultimately he argues that helped prevent businesses from closing and workers from losing their jobs. So bottom line here, Brian, Powell reiterated that the Fed is committed to supporting the economic recovery until it is complete. Back over to you.
1: All right, well, Elon, before heading to the hill, apparently Powell met with President Biden and some financial regulators at the White House on Monday. What do we know about the meeting to you your your sources? What was the big takeaway from the sit-down, if any?
3: Yeah, so the, the White House described this as sort of a routine checkup on the health of the financial system. The regulators, including Powell, said that it was healthy, that any risk is being mitigated by robust capital and liquidity levels in the banking system. But interestingly, White House spokesperson Jen Psaki was asked during her press conference yesterday if the president still has confidence in Jay Powell. That is Washington speak for. Is he going to keep his job because his term um, as Fed chairman does run out in February? Psaki did not answer that question directly. She just said this is a routine meeting, status check, et cetera. So, Brian, to me, that suggests that the parlor game is on of whether or not uh, Jay Powell is going to remain as Fed chair come next year.
1: Uh, the parlor game and the uh, the silly season perhaps around the Fed is is already kicking off as well. Keep those rates low, I suspect. Alon Moy, big day with j Powell on the Hill again. Alon, thank you very much. All right, joining us now is BTIG Managing Director and Chief Equity and Derivative Strategist Julian Emanuel. Julian, it's great to have you back on. Is there anything you think j Powell can or might say that would shake your uh optimistic not wildly bullish but optimistic view on the equity markets
8: well actually if he doesn't address this potential this this whole narrative of transitory inflation uh has begun to be tested clearly that's why we saw volatility in the markets last week clearly that's why we're seeing volatility among the fed governor's dots and the fed speak and so uh what what we need to see is more proof that it's transitory, rather than listing the reasons that will go away. And I would say that when you think about it, none of these meetings are routine and and normal and regular, particularly given where we are. Uh, The pandemic is still with us to a certain extent. The economy is going to grow at 7 percent. And as you mentioned, Fed Chair Powell's uh, term is uh, expiring next February.
1: Do you think he gets re? I know it's a little bit off topic. Do you think he gets renominated and, and reconfirmed, Julian? Would you like to see that?
8: Well, I think he's done a phenomenal job. I don't I don't think you can argue that, uh, that the forthright, forceful action that he took last March really, really set the table for what we've seen, the recovery in the economy, the recovery in financial assets. And think about this. Uh, it, a year ago, would we have ever expected, the economy projected to grow at 7% this year and unemployment to be back down below 4% next year. That's a testament to the action that the Fed has undertaken.
1: OK, that aside, what do we do? Where's a great spot if we're finding you know, anything? Is, is there anything undervalued? Where's a great spot to invest right now? Stock,
8: sector, crypto, anything. So from our point of view, again, the debate having been opened up last Wednesday, uh, post the FOMC meeting, we're likely to have a period of volatility, certainly leading up to the July 28th Fed meeting. We tend to be a little bit more cautious. We think the value theme continues to work long-term, but what we really like now is what we would call defensive value, that being healthcare, which has been overlooked for the better part of the entire rally, and REITs, interestingly enough, REITs have gotten a lot of interest from our clients in, in the last few weeks. They've done well. But when you think about their potential as an inflation hedge and something that isn't bothered by a flattening yield curve or gently rising rates, which is what we project, we think REITs are very well positioned here.
1: REITs. So that's an, that's an interest rate play, as you just said. I mean, aren't you scared to invest in REITs when we're just not sure where rates? If I say REITs and rates in the same sentence, again, I may go crazy. Aren't you nervous about that,
8: Julian? Well, so for us, again, it is to a certain extent an interest rate play. But the interesting thing about REITs is they actually tend to not correlate as much to the S&P 500. And people look at REITs as a potential inflation hedge. So if we get what we're expecting which is gently higher rates, if you think about it, the move from, call it, 1% to 1.7% that we saw in the 10-year yield earlier in the year really didn't derail the stock market all that much. It's this whole question of how do we properly address inflation that's causing the stock market to move sideways and become more volatile here.
1: Any view on energy i know that's been one that tom lee and some others love i'm not talking my book because i cover oil and gas julian what's the view on energy
8: uh brian you know as an old commodity trader when we saw west texas hit negative 40 a little bit over a year ago we did a lot of work on what the commodity market says there and what the energy stocks themselves say there and they said up obviously it's worked nicely we think there's more to go because we think the value theme is intact. It's a multi-year theme, not a multi-quarter theme. We think the economy is going to grow.
1: Yeah, and we're getting calls for $100 barrel oil, possibly from Goldman Sachs and some others. I love the REIT call as well. We're watching interest rates. Julian Emanuel of BTIG. Julian, always a pleasure. Have a great day. Thank you very much. And folks, just like that, the show's over. That does a for here on Worldwide Exchange, a.k.a. WEX. We'll see you back again tomorrow with the RBI and everything else. Squawk and the gang picking up your coverage next. Have a great day. See you tomorrow. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Life is a highway.